At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And hello everyone and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a board gaming podcast about board games. And Mark, I want to start it off on a good note because my hands are shaking in rage. And I want to welcome all the new listeners because maybe some people have heard about us from the Golden Geek Awards. So I want to welcome any new listeners we have because I don't think we've ever done that before. And, you know, I want new people to feel welcome at our podcast. We have been saving a seat for you, just like Elijah at Passover. There you go. So this is, like I said, a, a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, which is Teotihuacan. We're going to talk about some games we played this week, some news and why it doesn't matter. And then the topic of the week, which is analysis, paralysis, and the need to win. But like I said, like I just talked about, the Board Game Geek, Golden Geek Awards, just posted. So they posted it yesterday, but it was really today. But they're going to hear this. They're going to hear this, you know, tomorrow when we when we actually put it out. I can only edit so quickly, Walker. So so starting right off for the podcast, Corey, I want to say congratulations to Edward at, at the Heavy Cardboard. He won Best uh, Podcast of the Year. So we're happy for him there. But really, in my opinion, we came in uh, as a runner-up, and second is really, in my own opinion, best for us, because you can only win the Golden Geek once, and this keeps us in the, you know, in the view of the listeners, because when I was looking at the nominees, there was there was a few uh, podcasts that I knew of that I actually had to look up to see if they were still uh, making content, because I, I did not know, because they weren't nominated, and because they had already won, they couldn't be posted there, and I was, wasn't sure if they were still doing stuff, so, and I, I don't want to fall into that core category, I don't mind, you know, not winning, and then getting our name, you know, out there every year, so people can find our show. 
Walker, as per usual, you have found the most optimistic, sunny, and wise reading of the available situation. I propose that we come in as a runner-up every year for the rest of time. There you go. Now, as for the rest of it, I had a huge rant, but uh, as for the other as for the other categories, I would like to congratulate the winner. I mean, winners, winners. <laughs> Very nice, Walker. If this is the type of awards that Board Game Geek wants, then this is what they've got. They know exactly what they have. They know exactly how the voting's done. If they want it done any differently, then they would do that if they wanted a different type of outcome. You know, that being said, if new people to our hobby play Wingspan, I very doubt that they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be happy with this game. I have no problems with Wingspan, and I have no problems with whatever, with whatever, you know, like I just said, if people play it, they will enjoy it one way or the other. And that's all I care about. New players enjoying our hobby. Anyway, my last point I want to do on this is what are these awards actually for, right? Why do they have these awards? What what do they mean? And on that point, you're going to get, you know, 50 million different answers from different people. So, and like I said, they know what they have. And I doubt it's going to change anytime soon. I, for one, much as I said before, am happy to defer to your sunny and optimistic analysis of the situation. With that in mind, let us proceed to talking about other things, because talking about ourselves can get pretty boring. The as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus for this week, is Teotihuacan City of the Gods by Danielle Tashini Walker. What has the past year been for you with respect to Teotihuacan? It's been fantastic. Two expansions have come out for Teotihuacan. Uh... I talked about the one that just came out, not overly exciting, pretty small, but the first one that came out where it gave everyone uh, special character powers and, and an improved solo game and uh, let you change up the board. Sometimes it fell into that problem where the modules were so inconsequential that you actually forgot to incorporate them. And by sometimes you mean always? Always. But that, that come, I think that just came into trying to introduce too many you know, at the beginning. But overall, I think the first expansion was great. The second expansion was much smaller, but it's just like more of the same. So it's just like adding more cards to a deck builder or whatever. It's just it's just better, I, I feel, and worth it. I was a little lukewarm on Teotihuacan when it first came out, and I have to say that it's aged pretty well. Despite the fact that it's only a couple of years old, I really think that in terms of medium weight, relatively focused, but nonetheless reasonably crunchy Euro games, haven't had a whole lot of standouts in the past little while. And I think that Teotihuacan and Gugong both have aged very, very well, and certainly when compared to a lot of the other things that have achieved market success in the interim. So I have played Teotihuacan, uh, I'd say roughly about a third as much as you have in the past year. You play, you've played it a fair bit. I've played it on occasion here and there, but I've always enjoyed it every time. And it's got, as I say, the level of focus that I want out of a game. It's not a sprawling point salad types of endless nested mechanisms it's mostly about building stuff there are a couple of different th kind of things you can build admittedly but mostly it is about the building stuff and i've really come to appreciate the output of daniel tashini who designed teotihuacan and he and a number of other italian designers like tomato batista and paolo mori are really i think some of the best euro game designers for middleweight management euros and I think the Teotihuacan is some of his best work. It's still not, I think, the most gripping in the world. I, I wish it hung together a little bit more. I find the cacao costs a little bit unintuitive to this day. But I'm definitely more pro Teotihuacan now than I was when we first reviewed it. And I was reasonably positive on it at the time. 
Yeah, the flow is great. It looks fantastic. You're actually building something, and it has like the tile laying. And you're building a huge thing. The the table presence is fantastic, and I'm looking forward to maybe, hopefully, getting it back on the table soon. Please. What are tables? You. Oh, you mean screens? You mean screens? Uh, yeah, like right? real, like real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that is the game that we reviewed last year, in quotation marks. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I played a game called Vanguard Dawn of War. This is a somewhat less known release by Archon Studio. Archon Studio has a, a bit of a checkered past. They were originally Protos, and when they were Protos, they put out a game called Alien vs. Predator, and they basically stiffed a whole bunch of Kickstarter backers. There are a whole bunch of people that still haven't been made whole, and there was an ongoing disaster about them trying to sell retail products so they had enough money to fulfill a whole bunch of other Kickstarter backers. It was a mess. And to give credit where credit is due, or rather blame where blame is due, when Archon Studios founded, it was mostly the same people, and they were a bit dodgy about who they were. All of that having been said, I think that a lot of the criticisms directed against Archon Studio for their output since then are very strange. I commented a little bit about this in the context of Awakened Realms when we talked about them last week. I find it very telling. It's kind of a barometer. How you feel about a studio and their output is going to determine the tenor of how you complain about the lateness of their releases. If you like their games, you'll say, I, for one, am pleased that they are taking the time to make sure the game is designed to specifications, and I am willing to wait, blah, 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 blah. On the other hand, if you don't like them or distrust them, if they're three months late, this is obviously because they're criminals. And so I will say that despite the fact that they've been dodgy in their incarnation as protos, Archon Studio has now put out several Kickstarters and has bailed on none of them. And their biggest sins have been late releases, which is to say Kickstarter releases. That's just the nature of the beast. And again, how you react to late Kickstarter releases is, is often more about how you feel about the games than the practice itself. But anyhow, setting all that aside, Vanguard Dawn of War is their cooperative slash solo tower defense type of game where it's almost sort of like a MOBA in that you have minions swarming down these lanes and you play as heroes trying to defend a base against the predations of these minions. It's a little bit like MOBAs, except you don't have an opposing team, and it's a little bit like tower defense, except you don't build towers. It's just you. You are the mobile towers, effectively. And I have to say, when I was reading the atrocious rulebook, I wasn't terribly optimistic. But then again, I never am about Archon Studios releases. This is the same studio that put out Load, the painfully derivative, basically rum and bones knockoff, that's nonetheless, in my estimation, pretty fun to play. I enjoy Load. We didn't talk about it in our MOBA roundup a few weeks ago. But again, largely because it's mostly forgettable because it's a rum and bones knockoff. But I have fun playing Load. Vanguard Dawn of War, I have to say, I had serious doubts. I enjoyed it. It was dumb, stupid fun. It's nothing particularly creative. You have some movement points, and then you trigger various powers with action points, and you roll dice to kill things. But under the general category of that, I thought it was relatively pleasant. There was new stuff coming up. There was an interesting feature about how the various baddies show up and spawn with different abilities, but it's a very, very simple system that introduces a, a fair degree of randomness, but without throwing the balance out the window and without making there, there being too much upkeep. Uh, the hero differentiation was very, very cool, and the components were great. Archon always puts out marvelous-looking figures. They figured out a way to do not-quite-plastic, not-quite-resin minis, and they're very, very attractive. I will say 
some of the minion differentiation issues were a little bit wonky. I wish that the minions were smaller or a different color than the main bad guys, for example. But honestly, it wasn't an issue very quickly on into the game. And for what I wanted, which is to say a solo kind of dumb roll dice kill something game, I was very pleasantly surprised. And I will also say it was a joy to interact with physical components again. It was nice just to be able to sit down with some very nice minis and some thick cardstock and so forth. So I have to say that for what it was, Vanguard Dawn of War pleased me very, very much. I will probably go back to it. The biggest knock against I have, honestly, in terms of the likelihood of my playing it again, is that it is a fixed player count game. You have four heroes, you will always have four heroes, and so uh, the context in which I might do that are probably somewhat narrow, because four players, I don't know that there's enough engagement there for a player to just play a single hero. I don't know if that's going to be enough to divert them. But on the other hand, if I'm playing with three players, while three doesn't divide evenly, if I'm playing with two, there are lots of two-player games to play. So this might only be a solo experience. I'm not 100% sure. And it is certainly not worth going tremendously out of pocket for because it's loaded with Kickstarter exclusives, as you might imagine. But for what I wanted and for what it promised, it delivered. And I had a very, very good time with Vanguard Dawn of War. Speaking of uh, set players, uh, we got introduced to a game called Trieste, which is a three-player only game. It's a what I what I wrote, have written here is uh, it's it's a, like root the card game because you all have your own personal decks that are completely different than everyone else's deck because and they're all themed, right? So one player is playing the thieves, the other player is playing City Watch, and the other player and the last player is playing the Merchant Guild, and you all have different objectives and different decks and you have to police everybody just like you do in root you can't let you know you can't just go against one player and fight against each other because you're going to let the third player win and it's it's a interesting balance that you have to keep you know keep in hand it's a little bit of a hand management because you know you're bringing in cards and money and and i i really feel as though it's one of these games where you really need to know what's in your deck and know how quickly to cycle through your cards what did you think of it, Mark? I think you're doing giving it too much credit by comparing it to Root, because one of the things that we praised about Root, or that I praised about Root anyway, is that despite the fact that there's heavy asymmetry, you know how to interact with the other players, right? Because there's enough victory conditions in common that the, po the points of friction between the different factions works very, very successfully. In Trieste, I felt that the differentiation in the card decks made it feel almost like a take-that game, because although I could understand the victory conditions of everybody else, that part was very, very simple and straightforward and accessible, the card effects were all over the map. Everybody has these unique decks, as you say, and they're in excess of 30 cards, and buried in there are some very, very weak and inconsequential cards, and some incredibly powerful cards. If you do not get access to your powerful cards, if you just don't draw them, well then, you're probably not going to do very well. And you only get to draw maximally two a turn from the top of your deck. And that's if you use the entirety of your draw actions to pull from your own faction deck. If you end up with these powerful cards right from the start, then you might be able to use them several times over the game. And that's going to be very consequential and lead to a very, very strong showing. If, on the other hand, they're buried towards the bottom, ah, oh, well, thanks for showing up. And this is just after the result of two playings of Trieste. Very quick game. I'll give it that much. Very pleasantly moving. The flow, as you would say, is very strong. You just draw cards, play cards, resolve them. That's all you're doing, and it moves along at a good clip. But I very strongly got the impression that either you draw your incredibly powerful nonsense or you don't. And if you don't, well, then you're not going to go very far. So Trieste, I thought, was cute, but ultimately not the kind of thing I would return to by virtue of that strong element of the luck of the draw. What did you think? 
Well, same thing. 100% I would, I would not suggest to play this game again unless it was, you know, heavily suggested by someone else. It was clever. I liked the premise and I liked even elements of the execution. But if the deck were a lot smaller, for example, or if the card effects were smoother, or if there were other opportunities you could use to draw more cards, if you could pay some sort of opportunity cost to do that, or if it were more difficult to cycle your incredibly powerful cards when they showed up, any number of these things or any combination of these things would make me much, much happier. Because fundamentally, uh, we should say that, that Trieste is mostly about double guessing. You know, the city watch might play a card that says capture a thief This played this turn. And so the thief says, okay, do I think the city watch is going to do that to me this turn? Should I marshal my resources or should I instead play the thief? And all those other things. But again, I felt that that element of double guessing was simply drowned out by the prevalence of these very powerful cards. True, but it was even more precise than that. Like as the city watch, it didn't just say capture a thief. It said capture a thief that's only level one. So not only did you have to gamble on the fact that the thief player was going to play a thief, but you had to hope that he's playing a low enough one that you could actually do something. Most of the time, I just felt as though you weren't doing anything exciting. And as the person playing the thief, let me tell you, the fact that I knew that that was your most prevalent kind of capture card meant that I could play level two thieves with more or less reckless, reckless abandon. And then, but just to give you a sense of the escalation of power here, your very powerful card basically says, eh, fish for thieves in the thieves discard pile and or hand. So there was no double guessing involved in that. You just play that thing and it's a bomb and you go predate on another player. I similarly had another card that was more or less... I don't care what you've done this round. I'm going to predate on you. So it seems weird that you would design this tight game and nominally have all this double guessing element. And then it just be superseded by all these bomb cards, which exacerbates the luck of the draw. Agreed. And that was Trieste. I got to play Warfighter, the Tactical Special Forces card game. This is by Dan Verson at Dan Verson Games. Dan Verson Games being the, the company owned and operated by Dan Verson to publish the games of Dan Verson. And I, first of all, will concede readily that about half the time when I talk about Dan Verson, I call him Dave Verson. And I apologize. It's just a thing I do, you know, monosyllabic DA male names. But I, I know his name's Dan. I just sometimes say Dave Verson. I played with the official vassal implementation of Warfighter. Warfighter is a solitaire or co-op game about special forces action that has about a billion expansions available. And it also is one of the rare instances of commercial vassal mods. Vassal is the platform that I now have come to very strongly prefer over Tabletop Simulator or anything else. But it has very, very few commercial mods. Tabletop Simulator has some commercial mods, but Vassal has even fewer. This is a review copy that we were sent. Dan Verson Gaves sent us a, a copy of the Vassal mod for us to try. First of all, let me talk about the economics of the mod here because I find it quite striking. So this is a this is a mod that retails for $40, which admittedly is very expensive for a Vassal mod because, again, most of them are free. And secondly, it's pretty expensive for mods in general. Usually they're about 10 to 20 bucks. But here's what you get in the Warfighter Vassal mod. It comes with expansions 1 through 47, which is a staggering degree of variety and a huge number of cards available. The total MSRP of all of the content in the the Warfighter Vassal mod is $999.52. So from that perspective... It seems like a good deal. It's a very good deal. And look, the variety that you get, and one of the prime draws of the game of Warfighter is variety. The variety is staggering. Do you want to play Polish Special Forces trying to take out North Korean military forces? You can do that. Do you want to play Israeli Special Forces trying to take down Colombian drug lords? You can do that. Do you want to play Canadian Special Forces trying to take, like, 
go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. All these different combinations, all with their own decks, all with their own actions, soldiers and weapons, etc. And that's one of the things that I love about Warfighter. I have loved the Warfighter system ever since it came out, and I do not have 47 expansions, but I have a fair number. So here's the thing about the Vassal mod. Vassal is my preferred platform, and one of the things that I love about Vassal is that it, unlike Tabletop Simulator and a lot of other platforms, more on this later in an editorial on So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, it links components together. So it has this notion built into a lot of Vassal mods that this card is joined with this chip. For example, when we were playing the World of Warcraft miniatures game, it has a relatively bare-bones mod, but if you have an action card that says tap this to spawn a tiger, you can right-click on the card, and one of the options on that pull-down menu will be find me the chip for the tiger, and then it will spawn that chip. And so you don't have to go looking at other menus, you just drag it over to where you need. Warfighter kind of sort of does this, but not very well at all. For example, if you need to inflict a kill on an enemy, in the real-life version, what you do is you fish out a kill marker and you put it on one of the target reticles of the card. In the Vassal module... You can do that. You can go find the set of chits and drag it over onto the card that you want. Or you can indeed right-click and tell the card, inflict a kill. And that will spawn a kill marker on the card. But all markers on the card, whether it's a kill, whether it's a suppress, whether it's any number of other markers, will all spawn in the direct dead center of the card. So you're going to have to drag it into place anyway. Because otherwise it's going to be covered up by, by the next thing. So that's a bit of a, of a minor nuisance. That's the kind of thing that you would, exp you know, that's the level of polish, that's the level of sophistication, that's the additional level of development that you might expect out of a paid mod. But here's the thing that's really weird and that I find utterly bizarre in the Warfighter Vassal mod. There's no dedicated place for your soldiers, there's no dedicated place for your soldiers' equipment, and there's no dedicated place for your hand of cards at all. Normally in a Vassal mod, you have a window. You can, you can click and it'll pop up and say, this is where your cards go. Or a space on the table that's dedicated for the cards. Well, yes, there's plenty of room on the table, but there's no dedicated place. So you just stick them wherever you want. Now, normally this would be awkward enough, but what makes it further awkward is that I was playing multiplayer because Warfighter is still fun with lots of other players. Anytime anybody moves any of their resources, say they need to flip an ammo counter because their carbine has run out of ammo or something like that, or they just want to move a hand card over or they're playing an action card, what that does is the window then snaps to where their, all their cards are in their tableau. So you have one of two options. You either zoom out to a level that you can't read anything, or you play solo. And so I had to do a combination of these things. I had to do more position juggling for this mod than, than I've ever encountered. What I had to do actually was I kept my hand of action cards just in one of the system windows for like the Polish soldiers. We were playing as Canadians, but I needed a place out of the way where I could stick my cards so I wouldn't get in the way of these other people managing their cards because the mod wasn't helping them out. So I have a number of complaints about the mod's implementation. Let me just put it that way. But in terms of being able to play Warfighter either solo or with other friends online, the sheer amount of variety that this product offers really can't be quibbled with. So, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. I know that there's also a commercial tabletop simulator mod for Warfighter. I have not tried that. And Danversen Games has a whole bunch of other commercial vassal mods that I'm not yet quite ready to give my impression on, uh, but I, I've, I've tinkered around a little bit with them, and they seem preferable. So basically what you're doing when you're buying into this ecosystem of paid vassal mods, it just looks like you get the same kind of variety you would get in any other environment, which say some mods are really well done and some aren't. The core element, though, in terms of the sheer volume of material that you had access to, is marvelous. I don't know that I'd recommend this as your entry point into Warfighter. If you're not familiar with the physical game, you probably want to get started with that, I would wager. But if you're seriously considering, do I want to buy a whole bunch of expansions 
and or if you would really like to be able to play it in a digital format, I think that the Vassal mod deserves some serious attention, even though on the scale of mods, it's relatively pricey. So all of my previous comments about Warfighter being a very, very fun, albeit simple and straightforward game, still there. One of the key virtues of Warfighter is its astounding variety in terms of venues and assets to deploy, very much like a miniatures game. Absolutely there in the Vassal mod. Can't complain about that. And it definitely beats carting around 47 different decks of cards in your massive footlocker of Warfighter. So that, that's another asset of the mod. But I wish that the mod had a little bit more polish, to be honest. I was somewhat surprised. I was expecting, at the very least, an average level of sophistication from a, a commercial mod. And instead, what I got yeah, for, was... Yeah, for something you have to pay for, for sure. Yeah, I, I was very surprised that the mod was was pretty bare bones. Now, granted, this is largely because the mods are labors of love from fans anyway that, that are then sold by, by DVG games. But as I say, mild disappointment on that front. So it depends on what you're looking for from a mod based on whether or not I can recommend the Warfighter mod. But I am going to be using it some more and uh, putting putting it through its paces. If I have found features that I have missed, or if my experience changes of using the mod with more experience, I will definitely circle back later. And so that was what I have to say about the Warfighter Vassal mod. All right, over to another uh, card game, Innovation. You introduced me to Innovation. I remember playing it years and years ago, back at my first Gen Con, when there was just a prototype deck with little pen marks and stickers on the cards and for whatever reason i got a, a negative vibe from it then and I, I i always sort of pushed away from it ever since i you know didn't want to play it but i since you know this uh all this digital stuff coming out it had a great uh implementation on board game arena so i thought i'd give another try and i don't i'm not i, st I don't have any more reservations except for the fact if it's a large multiplayer game, I don't know, how many players can you play up to? Like Four. Four of the max? Four. If you're playing a four-player game in real life, I think, you know, managing all of those symbols might be a little painful because there are some actions that everyone on the table can can do if they have the right symbols. And then you're, you know, you're going around trying to count all these. What the board game arena uh, implementation does, it on the side, it shows all of the symbols and how many everyone has, and it's, and I think it's just the better way to play. I think it, we got through that game awfully quickly. The implementation or the, or the program, you know, did all the work for you, and and I can see in that game there'll be a lot of things that you might accidentally forget to do because you didn't realize that triggered this or you didn't realize you got to draw a card and this just automatically threw you cards when you were supposed to get them and, and forced you to do things that every time you're supposed to do something so there'd be no way to forget anything. And I think this is by far the best way to play this game. This was effectively your reintroduction to the game. Yes, you'd played before, but for all for, for many intents and purposes, this was your first play. And we played a three-player game. That is not the best way to introduce innovation. Two players is definitely the way to... In some, people's, some people adore innovation and refuse to play anything but two players. I am not one of these people, but for a first play, two players is ideal. And it is nonetheless the case, despite the fact that this was your first play and everyone else had played a couple, at least a couple times before, everyone was in one card of victory by different victory conditions. Innovation is a marvelously flexible game. You were getting pounded on hard in the mid-game. Dr. Stallone was predating on your score like crazy, and you made a couple of comments to the effect that you felt like it was impossible for you to win. I did not react with as much grace and as patience as a man of your eminent qualities deserves. I basically told you to shut up and, and suck it up. But by the end of the game, you were a card away from winning by one of the conditions. I was a card away from a different condition, and, and et cetera, et cetera. This was perhaps slightly exacerbated by Board Game Arena's absence of an undo. 
I literally clicked on the wrong card and that <laughs> might have been decisive. But anyhow, I agree with you that once you get up to higher player counts, it gets very difficult. Traditionally, in person, when you're playing four players, the way I like to play is in teams, and that simplifies matters somewhat, because then you only have to worry about one opponent effectively uh, by virtue of that. But you're right, tallying up the icons can get a little bit weird. But I will say this, though. Tableau builders are a dime a dozen, and we've talked a lot about tableau builders, the ones we like, the ones we don't like. And even my favorite, Race for the Galaxy, is not heavy on what, on player interaction. That is one area where innovation succeeds in spades. The player interaction and innovation is constant, and it is one of the key drivers and helps differentiate it from legions of other also-rans in the genre. Now, the cost you pay for that is tallying icons, but I think it's a cost worth paying, especially since the importance of icons further reinforces the one of the characteristic elements of Asmati games and Carl Chuddock designs, the importance of tucking cards in the right place and having cards splay in the right way and having your tableau develop in neat, organic ways. I adore innovation. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm always willing to play innovation. I wish I had more experience with the expansions because like a lot of other games with expansions, you really shouldn't play with expansions your first time through. And I'm constantly introducing the game to new players. But and and also the expansions aren't really available in online implementations. But even all, with all that, I've played the base game several dozen times, and I'm always willing to play again. It's a marvelous game. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Looking forward to playing again. Splendid. First that game makes- is definitely yeah. The first game is definitely a wash, and it, you you definitely are going to uh, be better off knowing all the cards. And I hope we just have more more time to you know dive deeper into this game. Well, on the topic of having to know the cards, because this is something, this is an area where I feel like I'm out of step with a lot of board game players, because I, a lot of people talk about how in innovation, you should really know the, 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 the identities of the cards. And I played Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is another poster child in the tradition of people saying, you have to know what, what the a constitution of the decks are. I'm not sure I agree, because when I play games like this, I tend to play far more tactically, I think, than a lot of other people do. And I'm just willing to let the cards come up and do what they do and try to react based on what's in my hand and what my opponent plays at the time up. Now, there's obviously a continuum. In innovation, I remember cards when they come up, but I don't plan for any cards at all. Oh, you're playing it wrong then, Mark. I don't prepare for gunpowder. I don't prepare for the pirate code. I don't even prepare for the icon shift in age four. But anyway, when it comes to Twilight... You're awful. Yeah, apparently. When it comes to Twilight Struggle, there's only a small number of cards that I care about, namely the scoring cards... Uh, Nasser, maybe, maybe remaining the abdication, and uh, maybe Castro. But anyway, setting all that aside, I play Twilight Struggle with the freely available Vassal mod, and I have to say, this Vassal mod is hot like a curry. It automates absolutely everything. It knows how all the cards work, and it knows how all the card interactions work. It is the best digital implementation I've ever played of anything, bar none. Seriously. It is so well done, so clean, so intuitive, so feature complete. I adored that part of it. And Twilight Struggle, I haven't talked about a lot on the show, mostly because the partner with whom I played Twilight Struggle is very distant from me. But guess what? All distances are relative now. Doesn't matter whether they're across the street or across the world. They're equally distant to you. And so Twilight Struggle is... As almost everyone knows, the not a war game, card driven war game by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews about the Cold War. I love the historical setting. I know the 20th century doesn't really turn your crank in terms of settings that that really appeals to you, historically speaking. But I am a big, big fan of the Cold War. And one of the things that I adore about Twilight Struggle is how it models successfully bankrupt geopolitical doctrine of the Cold War. And they're very open about this in the designer's notes. 
Twilight Struggle is a simulation of a whole bunch of geopolitical ideas like containment theory and the domino theory that are nonsense. And I really enjoy that kind of acknowledgement that they're modeling like an absurd counterfactual. And I just love all the different card effects and the, the, the give and take and the way that it's basically a game of trash management. Every turn of Twilight Struggle gives you a series of tortures that you have to live through and cards that you don't want to play, but you have to. And a whole bunch of things that look terrible and will certainly guarantee victory by your opponent. But guess what? Your opponent is suffering just as badly as you are. And the tension and the double think and the sort of head fakes... And deception involved, absolutely beautiful. Twilight Struggle deserves all the praise that it's gotten over the years. Yes, it could do with some cleaning up. Alignment rolls, for example, are dumb and, generally speaking, not used and a level of rule cruft that could largely be excised. But I have to say that th those are minor quibbles and all the other difficulties of having to know when the scoring cards come up and some things about luck of the draw and perceived imbalance. By the way, play with the Chinese Civil War variant. That is my officially recommended way to play Twilight Struggle in terms of evening out the balance marvelous game, one of my perennial favorites, and it has a beautiful free implementation. There's no excuse not to try it. If you want to play a two-player card-driven game, Twilight Struggle is definitely one to check out, and I'm so happy to come back to it. Yeah, like you said, I don't know what it is about that era, the Cold War, like I love World War One, Two, Vietnam, Korean War, and then it gets to the Cold War, and it's just so painful for me. All right, for my last game, I'm going to talk about a family game that I unboxed on that video. It's called Corilla. It's about it's this really cool underwater game where you have these friendly looking turtles and divers and boats and coral and seashells and pearls and treasure chests. And what it essentially breaks down to is sort of like color drafting. So there's this pool of four dice, and when it's your turn, you're gonna roll these four dice and you're gonna pick one and and match the color on the board and match the symbol, and you're gonna do that action. And it's like set collection. So you're either, you know, drawing fish or drawing uh, uh, seashells or, or star scoring points. And then when it's the next person's turn, they are to bring the dice pool back up to four. So you're sort of analyzing the board and you're seeing uh, the the different color coral areas that have that can use more dice or the or the have the actions that you want. So you you draft that color. So you're not gonna you're not you're not dropping that action, but you're giving yourself a better chance of getting that action. And then you roll, and it just keeps going around the table. And I think it's it's it has that one you know that one thing where it's where it's simple enough or a nice gateway game where you can just do what it do. Like, like a cockroach poker or a, or a skull where you, it, it just plays itself or you can go even deeper and you can, you know, use this, you know, second level of strategy and actually, you know, get some enjoyment out of it if you're a full-time gamer. Glad to hear. Designed by Michael Rennick and it's put out by Hutch Games. Is that how you pronounce that? Hooch. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Hooch. I like that pronunciation. It has an so exclamation point, that. so you got to make sure you yell it. Oh, you got it. It's all about the intonation. It's all about the volume and the tenor. Yeah, yeah. Last game I have to talk about this week is Under Falling Skies. This was brought to my attention because Czech Games Edition is going to be publishing a version of this later on this year with some modifications. But this was originally a nine-card print-and-play game that was put out last year and won a whole bunch of awards. And I tried it using the tabletop simulator mod, because again, it's just nine cards and some cubes. And I have to say, I was very, very pleased. Essentially, it's about repelling an alien invasion. And you have these five dice that you're going to allocate every round to various actions. 
And you can you cannot allocate more than one die per column. You get all your actions arrayed in columns. And three of those dice are also going to advance alien ships down towards your base, kind of Space Invader style. So there's a tension between, well, you want them to be really high, because that will make your actions better, but will also advance them further. Or you want them to be low, which will be weak actions, but they're not going to threaten you as much. And on top of that, the dice reroll mechanisms are very, very straightforward. You have two white dice and three black dice. Every time you place a white die, you can reroll any dice you want. That's it. So you get a couple rerolls, kind of, sort of, almost maybe, based on placement. So there's a little bit of tempo considerations or timing considerations there, too. I was extremely pleased by Under Falling Skies. As a solo game, it does most of the things that I want out of a solo game. It's got a small footprint, not a whole lot of rules references, but engaging with trade-offs and some interesting elements. Uh, not really a strong sense of tension, but it does have a whole bunch of different difficulty levels. And so I'm definitely going to ramp up the difficulty for my future games and component minimal. So if you're at all curious about uh, a, a reasonably quick solo dice game that has some relatively novel dice mechanisms and, and kind of some interesting development behind it, you can go check out Und Under Falling Skies. It's available for free and it doesn't require a whole bunch of other components. So uh, give it a whirl. Nice. And those are the games that we played this week. Now... On to the news and why it doesn't matter. So on the topic of podcasts that are actually producing content, this week I am a guest host on Board Game Barrage. It's a, another fantastic podcast that's out there. This is going to be episode 121, and it should be out in the middle of this week coming up. And we talked about some fantastic stuff. I definitely would check it out. I had a ton of fun, and I want to thank them again for asking me on. And uh, I'll do that anytime. It was super, super fun. Any venue that will produce more Walker into the world has my approval. Well, there you go. So Fantasy Flight Games has uh, been finally dropping the hammer on Tabletop Simulator. So we, we've, we've addressed uh, in the past what our editorial standard is with respect to Tabletop Simulator mods. We will play them and review them when they are either officially sanctioned or they correspond to games we already own. We're not going to go too deep into why that is, but it, you know that, that's basically the policy we've adopted. But Fantasy Flight has recently decided to take advantage of the fact that, in, in theory, you can send a DMCA notice to anything that corresponds to your IP and have it pulled down. And apparently they've done that on a number of very, very popular mods where users have done a very large amount of work. Apparently the Arkham Horror Living Card Game mod was very, very amply developed. And a lot of people felt that that loss very keenly. I can certainly understand that. I mean, it certainly goes to show that the sort of hazard that you engage in when you devote a lot of effort to tabletop simulator mods or mods in general when you don't have the publisher's approval. I will also note that in the ecosystem of Vassal, which is my preferred venue, as I keep talking about, Fantasy Flight has had a different stance towards the community, which is basically they will let you upload whatever you want so long as the game is not feature complete on the strength of the mod by itself. For example, example, in the Battlelore 2nd Edition mod, the victory condition cards are blank in the Vassal mod. So you have to have a copy of those victory condition cards in order to play the game. And that is how they've survived, and that's the sort of agreement that the Vassal community and Fantasy Flight have reached. But there is no such consensus with respect to tabletop simulator mods, and as a result, some of them are being taken down. So it, it it's weird. I will say that uh, a couple things on this. One of them I commented on the last episode of Pledge of Indifference. 
I find it striking how discussions about copyright and whether it is in your interest to exercise copyright in a variety of ways hasn't really evolved since the early days of Napster. The whole, well, you know, I listened to their stuff and now I buy their albums. And so if I hadn't pirated it in the first place, I wouldn't have listened to it versus it's their copyright. They can do whatever they want with it. That's just the way things work versus, oh, but Disney wrote the copyright laws to protect Mickey Mouse, blah, 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 on and on and on it goes. And honestly, I haven't read a new argument about this in like 20 years. Which is not to say that they're not valid arguments. It's just, it's the state of play. People seem to have their positions and aren't really willing to budge. And Fantasy Flight seems to have developed its position. How about about the second thing could be that if movies start enforcing their copyright laws, then maybe some certain science fiction games might not be produced or might be in a little (laughs) bit of trouble. Well, that gets a little bit more complicated because of the nature of IP and what you can protect. But point taken. Uh, So just uh, this goes to show that in the context of unsanctioned mods, it's a risk and it's a it's the Wild West out there and a whole bunch of things can and will happen. All right. I'm going to talk about WizKids. They announced that they're going to put out a game called Seastead, which is a two player version of Flotilla. We thought Flotilla was very interesting and had some very good points to say about it. I'm getting interested to play that again, but a two player version might be kind of interesting. We also played a game called Rise of Tribes. And just last week, I was thinking about how I wanted to try it again. It's coming back up onto Kickstarter because it's going to have a new expansion. And of course, as all Kickstarter expansions work, there's the all-in, super deluxe, get all the bits type uh, type deal. So if you uh, have any interest in Rise of Tribes, now's the time to check it out. Just a minor addendum, and this is this is the very tip of the iceberg of a much larger conversation. I just want to flag that there's a lot to be said here that I'm not going to say at this particular venue. A number of people reached out on Twitter in response to my, so far, full-throated support of Guards of Atlantis 2 on Kickstarter, which, by the way, has unlocked a whole bunch of additional stuff. I have no reservations whatsoever supporting Guards of Atlantis 2 because it is one of the best games I've ever played in the past five years. But... Some people pointed out that they had serious reservations about the way that women were represented in the game. And as a podcast that takes seriously the representation of women and other people in board games, some people found it rather striking that I would support a project that had representations that they thought were problematic. I will merely flag a couple of things. Number one, reasonable people can and should disagree about how various representations of board games are. Number two, people can and should have reasonable disagreements about the ultimate role that that will have in terms of their purchasing decisions. And finally, three, that will lead to different trade-offs in terms of what it is you're willing to support in terms of your commercial participation. Now, do I think that the representation of women in Guards of Atlantis 2 is unproblematic? I don't. I think the representation is actually problematic. Now, the degree to which I think it's problematic is, quite frankly, and I'll be perfectly honest about this, and this probably isn't the position I should have, but it's a position I do have, it's overwhelmed by my enthusiasm for the game. If this were a less good game, I'd probably be more harsh on its representation of women. But my enthusiasm for the game is such that I am willing to deal with it. Now, in the overall context of things, I've seen a number of people talk about how uh, this is you know, vastly worse than a number of other games of its type. I don't think that that's fair. I think that while the representation is problematic, I think it's very much par for the course for typical fantasy art representation of women, which is a sad indictment of said art, but nonetheless, it is what it is. I could say a lot more, but I'm not going to. I just want to say that I respect these these concerns, and I think that you should go take a look at the artwork and decide for yourself. 
And I think that it's good that the industry is having more of these discussions. And when the game comes out, I will certainly be in a better position to comment on the overall representation of women and the, the fullness of the artwork. And maybe in the context of my support of the project, I should have been issuing these caveats from the beginning. And if for that, I sincerely apologize. But nonetheless, I still think you should go check out Cards of Atlantis 2 on Kickstarter. Make up your own mind and support the game if you're interested. Speaking about checking it out, I saw the post that you were talking about, and I thought I'd just, you know, go and and look for myself. I, I scrolled down, and I got and caveats. I didn't check out every single character. I didn't go through and see every every card and other caveats. Like, it really doesn't matter what I think, because everyone's perception is different, and and I was just trying to look at it objectively, and all, all of the pictures that I saw, they were all completely clothed, and they all seem proportionately normal, so I didn't see anything that's not saying it's not there okay don't get me wrong it's you know there's probably ones i missed but from what i scrolled through i saw at least 12 images i didn't see anything that jumped out at me anyway yeah i I, i'm not there with you i think i i'm somewhere between your position and the people who don't want to back it because they would be embarrassed to show it to some of their female gaming partners uh i think that the proportions of the women are unfortunate i think the poses of the women are unfortunate and i think that generally speaking the costumes although not egregious uh, could use a little work so as I say, this is this is the tip of a much, much broader conversation, and I don't want to – I certainly don't want to blame Guards of Atlantis 2 as being some sort of object lesson of problematic representations of women in fantasy artwork. Because as I said, the industry, this industry that we talk about, it hasn't exactly been covering itself in glory over the course of its existence on this particular topic. I just wanted to flag I'm, – I'm not willing to defend every aspect of the representation – but a more full, nuanced, balanced discussion is probably going to be deferred to when and if we actually talk about the game when it's released. Gotcha. All right. I have two other quick last points. There was a game that came out called Steampunk Rally. It wasn't a, one of my favorites of all time. Uh, it's, it's, uh, because it's like sort of a head down tableau builder, people are going to work this very intricate engine and you just have to take their word for it because you have your own to worry about. And there's several people around the table in this crazy race where you're using tons of dice and, you know, everything goes. And I can recognize that it's, it's a very interesting and cool game. So they are back on Kickstarter with this fusion steampunk, you know, aliens have come down and now they have this new crazy technology. So things go even faster. Now you're flying around and apparently you can incorporate the cards of the old game. And once again, you know, buy them both at once and you get this really cool box. And if that sounds interesting at all, I would at least, you know, ch- you know, take a look at it. I, like I said, I enjoyed the first play and then it got worse and worse as I, you know, went along and, Anyway, Steampunk Rally, check it out. And lastly, the UK Games Expo 2020 has been cancelled due to COVID-19 problems. So that's a pretty big convention lost this year, and uh, I'm sure it won't be the last. No kidding. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is analysis paralysis, or its subtitle, which is Stop Wrecking My Game, You Try Too Harder. Or this is a game of skill, not endurance. Please hurry. This used to be fun. Or 12 years and up is the age suggestion, not the playing time. Well, we waited five minutes for each of your turns. Shall we wait another five minutes while you do a victory dance around the table? Or please end this. I'd rather you kill me. Wait, am I I having a stroke? Or during the wait, I constructed a monument to my disdain for you. Did you want to count everyone's victory points again? I really feel like you want to waste another 10 minutes of my life fulfilling that sensation you're looking for. Or someone help, I think they're in a coma. Seriously, who invited this guy? Or someone help, I think they're having an absence seizure. D- did 
did, did I fall asleep? Are, are, are we still playing? Or someone help, I think I will murder them. Whose turn is it? Never mind, I just lost the ability to care. Or I'd prefer self-isolation to this. Give me my life back. Or if we all die of starvation, you don't win by default. What's your player power again? Time warp? Patience drain? Or Zeno called, he says you're proving his point. So let me get this straight. Four other people took their turn, and now it's your turn, and you decide to start thinking about it now. How do I uninstall this board game? Or this isn't a Homeric epic, it's just the upkeep phase. So these are the things that you think about in your head when you look across the table and you're trying so hard to make sure your eyes don't roll as once again the person takes 15 minutes to take their turn so they can optimize their score in a children's game. <laughs> yeah, yes. So this is this is the unique intersection. And this is kind of a, a sort of joint corollary of topics we've touched on before. This is the intersection of analysis paralysis and com- competitiveness. This is when delays are being driven by someone's apparent need to win. Mark, I really feel as though the flow of the game is part of the game and is and is an intricate part of the fun. If if the if it keeps hitting speed bumps as it's going around the table and and causing pauses, not only does it disrupt it for you, but you can see it being disrupted for other players. You, you know, we've seen it that you know they reach for their phone because this person once again is taking too long, and now when it becomes that person's turn. You know, they're not ready because, you know, they've been waiting, you know, because they have no idea how long this person's going to take because it took them 15 minutes last time. And it just removes everyone from the game. It's it's really bad. And and here's the problem. Well, well, we'll talk about a number of these problems. But generally speaking, I don't know any way to deal with it. This particular manifestation, this idea of individuals, and some of them are really smart. Some of them aren't very smart. Some of them are very good gamers. Some of them aren't very good gamers. But it's not so much the capability that's the problem. It's this desire to avoid misplays or to find optimal plays that can bring a game to a screeching halt. And for this, I know of absolutely no remedy. It is awful, and it is endemic to our hobby, and I don't know a way around it. When dealing with other people, I don't do this. You don't do this. We're talking about other people here. We're the good people. We're the victims. But we don't know how to deal with these perpetrators. True. And I'm wondering if if you're worried about getting the optimal move every time, does it not just turn the game into like a puzzle? It's like they say, this is the, the right way to start a game of Axe and Allies, or this is the right. Well, then is the next move a certain way and the next move? And is it so wouldn't, can't you just eventually break every game down to exact moves? And this is how it plays out. If you're trying for the optimal thing every single time. Well, but here's the thing. The people who are driven by that kind of consideration, scripted openings, scripted patterns, the people who memorize how to get to the factory in 15 turns inside or whatever, these people don't take forever to take their turns. These are the people that kind of suck the joy out of the game for for themselves, from my perspective. Well, let me put it a different way. These are the people who play games in a way that I would not want to, that I would not enjoy. But they don't hold up the rest of the table hostage because they know what they're going to do. They've they've figured it out. They've played it so many times. You know, it's, it's like the player in Puerto Rico. There's a difference between the player in Puerto Rico that thinks that it's painfully obvious that you should take a certain role under certain table conditions. If they want to go do that, that's fine. Go with my blessing and go do that thing. But then, but there's a different kind of attitude. The kind that's going to give you crap for playing in, quote unquote incorrectly. They're the ones who ruin Puerto Rico and, and, and hold everyone else's fun hostage. Similarly, with respect to AP, if you're hyper analytical and you just want to memorize scripted openings to anything that's amenable to that, by all means, go do that. That's fine. 
go crush your opponents or whatever. But if you're going to take 15 minutes to, to sit there and waste everyone else's time, that is where I start getting judgy. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, like, I don't want to say I, I, it's a lot harder. Like, I, I, we talked about this just a few days ago, especially in this digital space. But when I look at a, when I'm look, when I'm looking at a board game, it's, you know, I'm not saying that this is how I see it. I'm just saying it's like Neo in the Matrix. You can see it unfolding <laughs> in front of you, right? Like you can sort of see how the game is going to progress. You can see how the turns, you can see, uh, you know, where your optimal thing may lie, what, what thing you really should get next turn. And I, and it's a lot harder, harder in the digital space because you don't get to see the whole board. It doesn't, it doesn't come alive like it does when it's right in front of you. So that's just like the one. Well, I would certainly agree with you that the spatial awareness uh, when playing games is harder in digital implementations. This is one of the reasons why I don't like playing digital implementations. I don't have a good sense of the totality of what's going on. You know, I, I can't just glance down at my hand and then glance at someone else's tableau. I have to laboriously scroll over to see all these things. So usually I just don't. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a certain level of abstraction of a certain sort of go with your gut of an intuitive style of play that fundamentally appeals to me. And one of the reasons why is precisely because I think it leads to a better social social environment. There's a quote that I've invoked before from one of my friends in Massachusetts, which I think is definitely true here. Misplays are interesting, play faster. Because misplays are fascinating. And anybody who studies, for example, chess will agree. It is, this, it is the misplay that leads to interesting game states. The notation being in, uh, you know, the sort of exclamation point question mark or question mark exclamation point when you're talking about chess notation. Those are the really fascinating ones. And so when people are just, again, if people are slow because they don't understand what's going on, that's one thing. That's one kind of problem. But when they're recalculating the score from scratch yet again, and it's very clear that they're already winning or they don't have a chance of winning or whatever, and they're just, it's clear that competitiveness is driving this. It makes me so frustrated. That's what I, that's one thing I've written here. Do you think do you think making mistakes is part of the game? Is that like an intricate, like when people are designing the games, do they do they put do they think about oh it's going to be great if they misplay this part or or do you think that's like worked in or do you think that is part of gaming making mistakes sometimes? It depends. Uh, there was actually a very on the topic of Guards of Atlantis two. There was a discussion about this on the Guards of Atlantis two forums where Artem Nechipurov was was talking with a bunch of potential backers, where where Artie was saying misplays are part of Guards of Atlantis two, and this is one of the reasons why he doesn't want there to be perfect transparency of information at all times. He doesn't want everyone to know all the values of everyone cards at all times, even though technically it's hidden trackable information. It's one of the same reasons why you don't have open scoring in Tigers and Euphrates. It's hidden trackable information. Same thing with the Castillo. There's this notion that you should design games to favor, at least in some context, a more intuitive rather than strictly calculational style of play. But that's a design philosophy. I will say that there is a very big difference between a game that understands that mistakes are inevitable and tries to make sure that a single mistake will not knock you out of the game forever versus other games where you have to walk a very, very narrow tightrope and a single mistake means that you're done for the rest of the game. I would just compare two different splatter games in that sense. There's Roads and Boats on the one hand. Roads and Boats, my experience has been if you make a mistake in Roads and Boats, congratulations, you're gone, you're donezo. You're never going to catch up. There's just no possibility of ramping up because everyone's just on this upward trajectory and you're, you're behind. On the other hand, Food Chain Magnate, which 
which is, which can also be very unforgiving. You can get pounded for a couple turns, but if you take a step back, as I constantly say, if you're able to take a step back from the game state and say, how can I turn this on its head? How can I reorganize my company? Who can I hire? Yes, the next two turns are going to be rough, but how can I come back three, four turns from now and completely upend everything? And that is one of the reasons why I vastly enjoy games like Food Chain Magnate, where you can recover from past mistakes. Regardless of the inevitability of mistakes, I don't think that a single mistake should knock you out of the game. Yeah, sometimes I sometimes I get a little frustrated when the person is not ready to take their turn, or, or you can tell they only start analyzing their turn when it becomes their turn. And some people might make the argument, well, the game state might change before it's their turn. When I'm playing, do you not set priorities on something? This is what I want to do, but it might be gone. So if that's gone, then second priority is here and third priority is here. And it can work for all sorts of like worker placement. If someone takes that spot, well, I'll go, you know, this is my next thing that will help me. Or I have to take this first. And if that's not available, then I'll, you know, do that. You know what I mean? I don't, maybe it's just, maybe people's heads work differently and maybe they just can't process it until they know for sure what the game state is when it goes, but I I feel it really affects the game. Well, you, like me, are willing to engage heuristics in a way that a lot of other people aren't. For example, we were having a a mild disagreement about to what extent we might want to know the deck. But you and I, when playing a game like Innovation or Twilight Struggle, would never seek to try to maintain in our head some sort of spreadsheet equivalent, tracking all available cards, knowing when they're going to show up. You might, you would never try to memorize what all the age one cards are in innovation and say, okay, well, that one I've seen on the tableau, that one I saw come out of my hand. So these are the cards that are still available. If this one dogmas, that, if this person dogmas this particular card that I've never seen before against me, what's going to happen? I've seen people who play like that. And honestly, they're not trying to be jerks. But for one thing, I, I can't imagine that being fun, but it's fun for them. So I'll grant them that much. But number two, when it takes them forever to calculate every single move, I really do think they're putting their own play experience above the play experience of other people. And in that sense, I will quibble with their life decisions. And then there's the point of taking back your turn. Like you, once you've, you know, fit, you complete your first turn and, and now it's like, wait, I've, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've seen something, right? And I think this is fine if you've like legitimately forgot part of one of your powers or you forgot something or you misheard a rule and you say, okay, well, I didn't realize it worked that way. Maybe, you know, cause it's okay if I just do this, but not solely because I, I, I just, sorry, I just figured out a way I can get more points. Is it okay if I take this all back and, you know, maximize my points instead? And that's where I think I, I would draw the line. This is the part on swag bingo, where you would cross off the box that says Mark reveals himself to be a complete and total hypocrite. Because for all my talks about playing quickly and mistakes are interesting and invoking heuristics, of the people that we game with regularly, I think it's fair to say that I am the worst at doing takebacks. I do takebacks all the time. Uh, you know, not every turn, but usually, you know, on average once per game, which is far more than in my experience other people. I think that's a fair characterization. And uh, I should really stop. I should be doing that less. I agree with you that there are some take backs are more acceptable than others. And generally speaking, insisting on a no take back policy is not a world I want to live in. But I think I do it too much. And I should follow my own advice and just accept misplays more often. I have something right here. There's always next time. Like, don't worry if you didn't get the optimal score next time. Just, you know, you know, next time you play, you'll be fine. Well, that's just it. It, it. This is one of the ways in which misplays are interesting, right? If you play optimally every time that forecloses opportunities for improvisation, both in the given game and for the next game. So you didn't pursue the optimal strategy this time. Well, that's another thing you can try next time you play the game, when and if you have that opportunity. Then I've seen sometimes 
him and Ha over their turn so long, and, and it looks as almost they're doing it on purpose, because then they reach a certain point where people start suggesting what they should do and listing out <laughs> all their all the different moves they could make during their turn. And so then then a conversation at the table starts, and then their optimal move is figured out for them. Yes, the, the beta gamer problem. But I think that part of this, I, I talked before about how, in my experience, I have not found a way to convince people who are suffering from analysis paralysis to stop. Like, a lot of people talk about different tricks that you can use, you know, play real-time games or play simultaneous play games or involve a timer. None of those, in my experience, have worked. If someone's inclined to take too long, they're going to take too long. But there are things you can do to inculcate a table culture of caring very deeply about the outcome of a game, which can lead to more analysis paralysis. In other words, I don't know of a way to cut down on AP, but I do know of ways to to blow up AP. And that is when the person is considering their move and not soliciting feedback for three different people saying, well, you could do this, or I would do this other thing, or I would do this other thing. And that both takes them, that, that, that both takes far more time and it also inculcates an atmosphere where there's the notion that everyone has to play properly and or rightly and or the best. If someone seeks advice, by all means, give them advice. But that isn't an invitation for 20 people for the rest of the game to take all their turns for them. Agreed. Now, there's another way to look at it. Is controlling the pace a stratagem? Like taking so long on your turn, like in order to attempt the momentum of the game. Like maybe... You know, there's, you know, this person attacking this person, you know, like sort of, you can, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's the game is having a sort of momentum, like there, it's like going against you or, or it's going a certain way. Do you like just stop on your turn and, and, you know, speed bumping on purpose. So, you know, it slows down and people sort of think of other ways to go type thing. You think that is a proper strategy or is it a strategy? Have you seen this actually happen? I have seen it happen. I think it's legitimate to, at the start of your turn, say, you know, to have a little bit of a meta discussion about what's happening in the game, but that's not really AP. That's just sort of game discussion about the state of the game and the state of play. And I think that's generally legitimate. I don't think that you should turn Kalis into a full-on diplomacy game, but it is reasonable. Sure, to... I've seen I've seen you do this multiple times where we all oh, realize boy. that you're winning and destroying us, and then we we sort of ha- you sort of realize that we're all about to turn on you and then you call this little meeting and say this isn't actually happening i i'm not actually <laughs> doubling your score you see you know you know you you guys all have some resources that you might be able to do some with but you, you know you really won't i'm i'm about to win but you know don't okay, two don't things. attack me two things I, first of all that doesn't cause me to engage in analysis paralysis number two i generally tend to peak early in games and that makes me an, a, a very visible target in, in many of these contexts. But anyway, let's set aside the bashing mark. And let me tell you a very sad story about uh, my earlier gaming experience. I, I haven't been involved in tournament direction or, or uh, arb- arbitration assistance in a variety of competitive scenes over the course of the years. And I remember one very particular player that I dealt with back when I was in Montreal. He did not track information the way everyone else tracked information. This was a miniatures game where everyone wrote unit information on sleeved cards with dry erase markers. Everyone did this. Everyone. Everyone, everyone, everyone. And anyone who didn't have sleeves or dry erase markers available, there were tons available he had. He didn't do this. What he did was he tore out slips of paper, and he made little handwritten notes, and he would just scatter them all over the board. And so other players couldn't see easily what his units were doing. They would have to ask him, what does this say? What does this other thing say? And... Over the course of his turn, he wouldn't be able to just glance and see what abilities he had available. He would spend minutes every time organizing his little slips of paper in ways that only seemed to make sense to him. More than one opponent 
started accusing him of deliberately doing this on purpose because his turns would take three times as long as anyone else's turn. And I finally, near, near the end of the tournament, one guy just conceded uh, about halfway through the match. They were halfway through their match. Everyone else was finished. He says, that's it. You win. Congratulations. Your tactic worked. I have no interest in pursuing this game. I'm done. You're taking too long. I'm out. And he left. And I was so sympathetic to this guy. I don't know if the dude who was taking forever was doing it consciously or whether this was just a, a, an unintended side effect. But I, I started seriously suspecting that he was conscious of the possible consequence and was indifferent to it. Exactly. That's all I've got, sir. This is sort of a mindset that I wish more people would adopt, and that is that there's a sort of mismatch of priorities that people have, and I think it's related to loss aversion. We've talked before in the podcast about how there's often a world of difference in a gameplay experience between giving someone two points if they do a thing and costing someone two points if they don't do a thing. Those feel very, very, very different. And that's because of loss aversion, fundamentally. And I think that what a lot of these AP-prone competitive players are doing is they are suffering from loss aversion. They don't. They want to avoid the dumb move. They want to avoid the suboptimal play. They want to avoid doing the thing that's not ideal. And I really think that they need to get over that because, and this is one of the main reasons, there's a quote from Philip Dormer Stanhope that I really like, which is, most people enjoy the inferiority of their friends. When you make a misplay, in a competitive game, people aren't going to think you're stupid. They're just going to think, aha, I have an opportunity now. And so everyone gets happy. I mean this very sincerely. Misplays make people happy. This is one of the things that I internalized uh, very, very early on in my life when I was forced to engage in team sports when I was a child. Very traumatic experiences. Very sincerely traumatic, I mean. But when I made the switch to racket sports... I figured out I didn't have to play soccer with a, with a whole bunch of other 12-year-old cretins, because if you're not an athletic kid, team sports are, are brutal torture. But when I was playing tennis and I played like a monkey, my opponent was happy. As opposed to a whole bunch of people being angry at me, suddenly everyone was happier. And I was happy because they were happy. And so it was wonderful. And there I was, playing like a monkey, being the worst tennis player ever in the history of ever. And everyone was happy about it. If I do a serious misplay in Kalis, if I'm able to get over it, and it just rejoice in everyone else's opportunity, well, then everyone profits from it. So, in other words, this is just a more complicated way of saying get over yourself. But seriously, just accept the fact that everyone's going to like the fact that you engage in misplays more often. Yay! True, and on top of that, the only thing I'm going to add is just read the table. If, if you know, you can sense, you know, what you're doing or, or something at the table is going wrong or, or causing, you know, some sort of friction at the table, then, you know... This is for everyone just to have fun. And so try to smooth out those edges. Yeah. And furthermore, just as a, another thing in favor of misplays, when you play a game badly, this is not a reflection on you. Far too many people, I think, and, and at, at times I confess I fall into this fallacy as well, but I don't think very often, I hope, playing strategy games badly doesn't mean you're not intelligent. Some of the smartest people I know are terrible at games, and many dumb people I know are really good at games. It's okay to play a game badly. It doesn't mean you're not a smart person, and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you intellectually. And honestly, one of the one of the people I'd just like to flag, and I'm sure you've observed this this as well, is Louis is a champion at this. He's absolutely a champion. If he feels that he's asked too many questions, or if he just doesn't want to deal with it, he's just going to do something, not randomly, not arbitrarily. He's not going to throw the game to somebody else, but he'll start something. And even if someone says, are you sure those consequences are going to be advantageous to you? He's just going to say, I just want to see what happens. Let's keep the game moving. And I respect him for that endlessly. 
I agree 100%. And then he pants us. Yes, absolutely. In turn two, we're like, oh, Louis, he doesn't know what he's doing. We should really step in and tell him how to play properly. And then in turn, uh, you know, eight, we're like, crap, Louis mopping the floor with us. <laughs> yes, exactly. And to sort of sum up, my ultimate position on this is somebody who who is, I think it's fair to say, rarely the slowest player. I think we should all adopt Walker's excellent maxim, your own bit of wisdom that I think applies in so many contexts, but here especially, be patient. Because I, I, I think that this mindset, although I think there are ways that I think we should try to remove people from this mindset and get them more comfortable with misplays and get them away from competitiveness and, and internalizing competition, you're not going to change someone's personality and entire outlook overnight. And I really do think that this is a function of outlook and personality. So you might just have to deal with it. 100%. Just, you know, take a deep breath and and maybe just help them along, find out what exactly it is they're having trouble with understanding, and uh, get the game moving. Or let or or leave them alone. And don't beat them need. with the box lid. Beating with the box lid is is bad because <laughs> that, that will that will reduce the resale value. <laughs> Wise words. That's gonna do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just roll the dice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Beatty, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the Silver Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thank you again so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like this podcast, tell a friend. Peace! You've been listening to Silver Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.